As we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, and God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I remember uh, once when... I think at the time, I think I only we had three boys. I think Tim and Dan had gotten into a little bit of trouble, if I remember right, and took them into their bedroom and were going to deal with the situation. And, and I remember just taking some time to explain to them why we were doing this. And I explained to them that what they were about to get, which was a spanking, was uh, not because I was mad at them, but it was because I loved them. And because I loved them, I was concerned about the direction of their life and how they behaved and, and what kind of a person that they were. And so that uh, what was about to transpire was actually a result of the love that I have for them. After that conversation, they seemed to understand. They recognized that. In fact, they'd tell me at different times after that that it was because of love that they would be disciplined. But I, w- I wouldn't say they were excited about the opportunity at the same time. It wasn't, it wasn't a pleasant thing. It was, a, it was an unpleasant thing, but it did bring a good result in their life. And, and that's really what we're looking at as we're dealing with this passage or continuing to deal with it as we began in this passage last week. So picking up where we left off, if I could just remind you that what he's dealing with is suffering. These people were going through some suffering. And in their mindset, that was a hard thing for them to compute for the first century Jew, was that if you're pleasing to God, then everything should go pretty good in your life. And if something's falling apart in your life, then you must have done something wrong. It's kind of like Job's friends that came to counsel him. And they kept telling him, you've got to have some sin in your life that God's punishing you for. Otherwise, why would this happen to you? Well, what the author does at this point is he kind of reminds them of what we already saw in chapter 11. In chapter 11, you saw people toward the end of the chapter that suffered many horrible things, but were all approved to God because of their faith. In fact, they were held up as heroes of the faith. And so the point that he's making to them is, if you're going through some suffering, it doesn't mean you're on the outside of God's will. It may very well mean that you're loved and accepted by God and that he's disciplining you as his children. 
the word discipline does not necessarily, though it contains correction of wrongs, as reprove and chastise also did within the passage, but it also has the idea of bringing things into your life that you have to work to overcome, kind of like as we pointed out last week, a coach will do that. They will put their members of their team through a certain amount of suffering in order to strengthen them, make them, give them more endurance for the competitions ahead. A teacher will do the same thing. They pile on homework. They make you write papers and essays. They put you through that rigorous task in order to build your knowledge. Parents do the same thing with, for their children with chores. And, and sometimes just by holding back and, and watching a child, making a child deal with a situation on their own, that will strengthen them as well. And that's the point that he's making for us within the passage. Now, as we've looked at it, so far we've noticed that we need to have the right perspective in suffering. He kind of does a reality check with them. He says, look, you haven't yet resisted unto blood, like a lot of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 had, like Jesus has. Kind of brings them back to reality. Because a lot of times when we are going through hard circumstances, we can exaggerate. So he cuts through that. The other thing that he does is he gives them a better understanding of their position. And he points out that the reason that they're going through sufferings, he wants them to view that as the discipline of God. That God is putting you kind of through exercises that are going to strengthen you. Because that was the major part of the theme coming into this passage, is building that endurance. Now the, the passage theme goes to discipline. Remember, the word endurance was used repeatedly in the first three verses. And then in verse 7 as well. But then discipline is used nine times in the verses that we're looking at here. So the whole point is, is that God uses discipline in our life to build endurance within our character. Their suffering was not an act of God's judgment, but rather His discipline. Very important distinction. Judgment brings condemnation. Discipline brings training, which builds character, which, which one leads to death, the other one leads to life. And so we're under God's discipline. Uh, we also need to understand our Father, that we have that Father-Son relationship with Him and what He's trying to do in our life, which brought us right into the purpose in suffering. Notice in verse 11, it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The goal here is righteousness. The discipline that God brings into your life, if you allow that to train you, to, to, to mold you, to, to strengthen you, it builds this righteous character. He's also going to point to another concept, the word holiness. And that's what, remember last time, we kind of ended by saying that God focuses a lot more on our character than he does our comfort. He's more concerned about our righteousness than, than he is our relaxation or or our entertainment. Or that's what God cares about who we are at the core. And so the things that he brings into our life is to strengthen us and to build us up. Now, he does it perfectly. Last time I told you about putting a wart band-aid on my son's open wound. And, you know, how God doesn't do that. God does everything perfectly. I was very encouraged after church. Uh, Jonathan told me that his grandpa pulled the wrong tooth out of his uncle's head when he was trying to help one time. And I thought, oh, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad. At least I'm not the only one that blew it. You know, and so, but you know what? God is, God is perfect. God's discipline. We discipline our kids as we see best, but we don't always see everything. God always sees everything and he's, he's working what's best in our lives. Well, that brings us up to this last point. And the last point is our pursuit in suffering. 
because he tells them to do, do just that. Even though they're in the midst of this suffering, some of them have been arrested, some of them have had their homes confiscated or other properties, some of them have been publicly humiliated, they're going through some real suffering, he still calls them to pursue a path. In verse 12, he tells them, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for, pursue, follow this direction, make this straight path, head this direction. And so God has a pursuit for us with whatever we're going through. God has a path for us that he wants us to follow. As we look down through this list, there are personal responses that he requires from me. And there are interpersonal responses that he requires from me. In other words, there are responses that I, those ways that I'm supposed to respond to God's word that are kind of an individual thing, right? That I have to do it. I have to step up and do this. But there's also interpersonal things. It calls upon me to relate to the people around me. It calls upon me to continue to be a part of the body of Christ in a meaningful way. My actions don't just affect me. My actions affect other people within the body of Christ as well. And so we need to act accordingly. For example, as we look down through the passage, he starts out in verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. What is he calling them to do? It's time to get up. It's time to get moving. It's time to act responsibly. It's time to get on the right path. As he tells them to straighten the path for their feet, he says, look, it's time for you to get on the right path and get headed the right direction. When I think about this, I think of it kind of as an, as an attitude. right? It's a, it's a personal attitude adjustment is what he's calling them to. And every person has to do that. They have to do it for themselves. I, I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. He's calling them to a personal attitude adjustment, a personal response. But at the same time, if you look a little bit farther in the passage, he says you need to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up among you and therefore defiles many. That's talking about an attitude that can affect the group. If I'm uh, feeling down in the dumps and if I'm discouraged and I'm starting to complain about things and whine about my circumstances, that can kind of poison the attitude for the group. I need to make sure I have the right attitude, getting my feet on the right path. At the same time, there's an interpersonal aspect that I need to make sure that my poor attitude isn't dragging other people down with me. I have a responsibility individually before God, but individually before God as I relate to the group of people that are around me as well. There's several things that he says that need to not happen. Notice in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then right after that, he says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And then in verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And so those three things that he points out specifically to these people. The first thing that he says is see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. Now we've been talking about that a little bit throughout the the study. He keeps doing two things. He keeps promising them or showing them the promises of God and the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he keeps warning them that they better remain faithful. That salvation really is found in Jesus Christ. And that we have it better. No matter what happens to us, we're better off with him. But in all those warnings, he shows them, look, it could be that you're not inside the grace of God. He thinks they are. He's seen enough things in their life previously that he's pretty convinced that they're genuine believers and they've experienced the grace of God in their life and that they just need to continue. 
But there's always that doubt. And the reason he has doubt is because they seem to be drifting away from Christ. They're, they're not being as faithful as they used to be. They're whining more about their, their situations. They're not holding as closely to one another in the church and, or to Christ. And so it's given him cause for fear. And remember, just like we looked at the example of all the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, we got to remember back that we don't, he'd also listed an example of the unfaithful in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 as he looked at their forefathers and how they rebelled against God in the wilderness. And so he's telling them, look, there may be some among you that have not experienced the grace of God. And if that's the case, you, you probably will fall away. But he also continues to tell the people that, you know what, we're encouraged. We think better things of you, things that belong to salvation. You know, I remember being the same way. For a year and a half, I started to change some things in my life. I started learning some things about God. Still wasn't saved, wasn't a Christian. Didn't realize I wasn't. Didn't really understand what one was. Until all of a sudden, one day I realized, I don't have Christ in my life. I don't have His grace at work in my life. I've never put my personally put my faith and trust in Him. I haven't made that decision. And then I made it that day. It was June 2nd, 1985. And you know what? I needed, the, I needed that warning. Make sure that you don't fail to receive the grace of God in your life. Well, I'm going to challenge you the same way. If you're, if you're here this morning and, and maybe things in your life are tempting you to kind of withdraw, to, to kind of throw in the towel on God and your relationship with Him through His Son, or if, or if you're here this morning and, and, and you realize that, you know what, I've never uh, entered that place. I've never come to that, that decision where I put Christ first in my life, where I received the salvation that he has to offer. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. You may have been sitting in these pews or in other churches like them for all your life. If you haven't put your personal faith in Jesus Christ, you need to do that. He says that's the first thing. Make sure that nobody misses the grace of God. But then also he goes on from there that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. You see, here's part of that interpersonal part again. That no root of bitterness springs up. And what do roots of bitterness do? They cause trouble. <laughs> That's what they do all the time. And you know what? They, they, they cause discontentment. And grumbling about the circumstances and grumbling about the situation. And, and it brings other people into it with you. I remember I had a pastor years ago uh, that told me, he said, one of the easiest things to convince people of is that they're getting a raw deal. And, and I look even in my own life, and it's, it's easy to do that, isn't it? It's always easy to complain about the politicians. It's easy to complain about the weather. It's easy to complain about, name it. It's always easier to complain than it is to find something good. It's just part of our sinful nature. And these people were going through some legitimate sufferings. There were some hardships in their life. If they don't stop and recognize that those hardships are allowed in their life by a loving, gentle, heavenly Father, then they're going to get caught up in that bitterness. And they're going to be complaining. And they're going to be, I like the in the Old Testament, the King James uh, version of it, dealing with the children of Israel, said that they murmured. Now the ESV says that they grumbled. They're out in the wilderness, provided for miraculously by God. You realize God fed them miraculously. He gave them water miraculously. And he made it so that their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. So God took care of them in miraculous ways. They're in the wilderness when God wanted them in the promised land. So it was their own disobedience that put them there. And you know what they did? They grumbled. They murmured against Moses and against God. And God judged them severely for it. 
Our circumstances that we have, that, that we're living in, God is the one that allows them to be what they are. And so, when we complain about our circumstances, we're complaining against God. We're complaining about Him. He hasn't given us the life that we want. He hasn't given us the circumstances that are favorable. We need to be very careful when we start murmuring. It's one of those, what are they called? Onomatopoeia, I think it's called. When the word just kind of sounds like what it is. You know, there's that murmur, that kind of... That's what he's saying here. He says, uh, a root of bitterness, if you start focusing on how tough you've got it, that you lost your house, that did these different things, that, you know what, that, that bitterness can spread. And that, that root of bitterness, when it springs up, you know what it does? It causes trouble. It causes more people to do the same. And pretty soon you've got a group of people murmuring. It, it just causes problems. You know, I've got a really good friend. He's like a brother to me. That right now is pastoring a church that is almost non-existent. And it was such a good church. Ten years ago, it was like our church. In fact, they're they a little bit bigger community. They were running a little bit bigger. They did kind of the same thing. We added on to their church. They added on to their church. They were growing, and they were doing well. He runs a bus ministry to kids on Wednesday nights. It goes into other communities and picks up kids and brings them back. He has a huge children's ministry there. He and his wife, Mark and his wife, Gretchen, have done an awesome job uh, Job there. Mark is a great preacher. You've heard him. He's preached here for, for us a, a couple times. But you know what? I had a deacon that decided he didn't like Mark anymore. Wanted somebody that was different. Wanted somebody that was a, maybe a little bit more outgoing or something like that in the, in the community. And Mark has a big impact in the community, but it's through things like the children's ministry and that kind of stuff. And he started to grumble and murmur. And he persuaded other, another deacon. And kind of just one at a time, but slowly. And pretty soon, most of the people in the church have eventually left the church. And it's a, it was a great church. It had a great ministry in town. In fact, one of the, one of the members that's still there, he's a super or principal or something in their school, and he said, our, our community needs this church. And he wrote a letter to the people that, were, that had left. But they just murmured and complained and they grumbled and they, all this stuff kind of outside and they bring it to church with them and then pretty soon a few of them left and then a few of them more left. And you know what? It just gets to the point where when you go to church, it's a discouragement because you walk in and you realize how many, how few people are there compared to what used to be there. And it's very hard to overcome a negative attitude like that. When that bitterness causes that kind of trouble, it's like a snowball rolling down the hill. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. That these people with the suffering they're going to, they could get a poor me attitude and they could start to grumble and complain and and they could become bitter over their situation. And you know what will happen if they do that? Their bitterness will spread and other people will begin to murmur and complain and this isn't worth it anyway and and, uh, we're better back in our old life and that snowball will gain in size and it will just cause all kinds of trouble. It will destroy people. It will destroy the church. It will destroy ministries. It will completely tear it apart. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, see to it. And the word see to it is the same word that's translated a a bishop or overseer in in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when it talks about the office of a pastor. He's saying, look, you guys need to oversee. You guys need to make sure. He's not talking even to just one person specifically. He's talking to all of them. And you know what? That's what we are. In our interpersonal relationships within this church, we oversee one another. Yes, that's kind of my position as a pastor. But, but we hold each other accountable and we oversee and we recognize when somebody's going through some discouragements and we try to encourage them and pick, and pick them up and to help them through those things. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. He's saying, oversee it. See to it that none of this is happening up. And wherever you see bitterness starting to get a foothold, get, get rid of that. 
stop that trouble from happening. But then we go on from there. And it says for the third thing in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The word for sexual immorality there is the word pornos, which obviously is the word we get our word pornography from. It's the most general term of this kind of sin, of sexual sins. And it just basically refers to any kind of sexual activity that is outside of the bounds of marriage. It's just a sexual immorality. But the interesting thing here is it it looks kind of, at first, it looks kind of awkward at this spot. Because it's been talking about uh, you know, roots of bitterness spring, springing up between uh, people, people falling short of the grace of God, which you, you would prove yourself to be outside the grace of God if you live in that. And then it says with Esau, either sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. We don't have any record of Esau being sexually immoral, really, unless you look at the fact that he took foreign wives. But I don't think that this is necessarily saying that Esau was sexually immoral. But there's still a, there's like, like a connection there. There's a connection between the sexual immorality and the unholiness of Esau. I think the key is in that idea of holiness. What is holiness? Esau, it says, was unholy. He was profane. When we think of holiness, we think of holiness as being separate from sin. And there is an aspect of holiness that absolutely deals with that. But in relation to Esau, it gives us an example that gives us some indication. It says that Esau sold his birthright. For a meal, a single meal. Now remember that? They were twins. Esau was older by minutes. Jacob comes out right after him, hanging onto his heel. And so Esau is older, so he has the birthright. He's the one that gets to be in charge when dad, anything happens to dad. He's the one that gets the, the, the inheritance. He has the privileged position as the oldest son. Jacob would love to have it, but it's Esau's by right. Esau is a hunter. He's out hunting, and he's out hunting for a while. He comes back. And Jacob is there, and Jacob was cooking a pot of stew. And Esau comes up to his brother, and he says, give me a pot of that stew. He's famished. He's hungry. And Jacob says, no. Typical little brother, right? And Esau says, I need some of that stew. And Jacob says, I'll tell you what, trade me your birthright for it. And Esau says, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? Uh, probably needs a reality check here. I don't think he's going to drop over dead in a moment. He probably has time to go even make his own bowl of soup. Peanut butter and jelly works all the time, you know. He's probably going to live that long. But he's, he exaggerates his position again, and he tells him, what good is my birthright to me if I'm dead? It's yours. Give me the bowl of soup. And Jacob gives him the bowl of soup. Look at what just happened there. Esau would take that which is important and trade it for a single bowl of soup. What did, it, what did he do? He took, he took that which was meaningful. That birthright was meaningful. He took something that was so meaningful, connected him and where he fits in the family, where he's at within his home, who he is before his father. It took something meaningful and he traded it for something so completely temporary. That's Esau. You see what kind of person he was. He would take, he would take something meaningful and trade it for instant gratification. And now all of a sudden the connection between that and sexual immorality start to line up. Marriage is the bounds for sex. Marriage is completely meaningful. Marriage is a covenant. The reason we have marriage is because God is a covenant-keeping God. God says, I am committing myself to you. You commit yourself to me. I'm going to be faithful to you. You be faithful to me. And we have this covenant relationship together. To give us a picture of that, God made that our experience with one another. This person is going to be with this person, and you're going to enter this covenant relationship with each other so that you're so committed to one another that you're like one person. And then sex 
is going to illustrate that union. Sex is not a recreation. It's meaningful. It's deep. It's personal. It's incredible. But when we enter into it outside of those bounds, it's instant gratification. It's just satisfying a passion for the moment. Esau is going to eat that bowl of soup, and about four hours later he's going to be hungry again. He took something, his birthright, something meaningful, and he traded it for something so temporary and unsatisfying. And that's what he's telling these people. These people are looking at turning their back on God. And for what? For a house? For health? For, for what? Nothing compares to what you lose when you turn your back on God. And that's what he's saying is that's what holiness is. Holiness is choosing God. It's choosing the meaningful over the transient. It's not offering up the important on the sacrifice of the immediate. That's what holiness is. It's that commitment to God. It's that being sold out to Him. That's what Esau lacked. And he's telling these people, look, if you, if you can do that, if you can turn your back on Jesus Christ for the little bit of security it's going to buy you for right now, you're profane. You're unholy. In the Old Covenant, God gave them a warning in Deuteronomy. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. You see, if I could just put that in my own words for you just for a moment, what God is saying is these people, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. He's reminding the people of the covenant that he has with them before they go into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, there are going to be people that are worshiping other gods. He says, after hearing this covenant that I just gave you, if you go on from here and say, okay, I'm protected by the covenant. I have, an, I have a covenant with God. But you continue to live in your sin and the stubbornness of your heart, thinking I'm protected anyway because of that covenant that's up there, but persist to live in the stubbornness of your heart. God says, that doesn't cut it. In other words, people will have a false security. If I could put it in our day, if I, if I go out of here and say, you know what, I've been... I, I put my faith in Jesus. I said a prayer one time. I invited Jesus into my heart. I was baptized to show everybody that I, that I believe that. And then now I can walk out and live in the sin, continue to live in my sinful lifestyle that I was living before coming to Christ. And I can persist in that and continue to live in the stubbornness of my heart and resist the will of God in my life. But I'm fine because I did those other things. I'm under the covenant, so now I can do all these things. God says, you know what? You're not under the covenant. If you can see it because... You still have that stubborn heart. Your heart is not yielded to God. And that's why it's so important as we look through this book and in our lives as well. As Coaster said, he said, warning is the counterpart to promise. God promises a bright future, a great eternity, a, a relationship with him, the glories of eternal life and, and, and heaven with God. But at the same time, he warns us, don't fall short. Don't fail to be in the grace. 
Don't be unholy. If, you're, if your character is unholy like Esau, where you're more interested in the passion of the moment than the promises of the Word of God, then you'll meet Esau's end. As we look at facing suffering, we have a pursuit, a direction that God wants us to pursue. He says, get back up, get your feet on the trail, strengthen what needs to be strengthened, let rest what needs to be rest, but get on the right path. Endure this suffering in the right way. It involves a personal response, how I react individually, and it also involves an interpersonal response, how I react with other people in it as well.